I love the Lord's church. And it is good to be here amongst His people. And I oftentimes say that we serve a God who is not a God of have to worship, but a God of want to worship. In other words, if you woke up today and said, oh, do I have to go? No, you don't ever have to go. You get to go, right? It's the difference between a child who says, do we have to go? And the parent who says, no, you get to go. Now get in the car. A big difference, right? Difference of attitude. Today you serve a God who wants you to be here. But He wants you to want to be here. And it is a pleasure to be amongst His people today as we discuss in this gospel meeting format the concept of learning to discern. Now, I told you in the beginning at Bible class, but I recognize some may not have been here. The idea between uh, behind discernment is the, the concept of being able to decide between good and evil. It's the idea of, of practicing your spiritual senses that have been shaped by God's Word so that you can understand that there is a pathway that God would have you to take on a particular subject or a particular area of life. And what's beautiful about the Scripture is that the Scripture has not left us out in the dark. No, there may be some areas that even scholarship would look at and and will say, well, the Bible may not be exactly clear on, on that subject in that passage. But I will tell you this, that God has not left it, left it up for you and I to have to guess on the subjects that we're talking about this week. And I would say this, He's not left it up for you to guess on subjects that matter to Him and to you as it pertains to your relationship with Him. Because His goal is to be reunited with all of us in that covenant relationship. And so my prayer this morning is this, that if you are outside of a covenant relationship with God, that throughout the course, not only of today, but throughout the course of this meeting, that you will consider your relationship with Him. That you will consider whether or not there really is truth and whether or not God really does want you to know that truth and whether or not that truth really does lead to freedom as was read earlier. Again, I want to thank you for allowing Aaron and I to join you. And I want to say this. I want to say Happy Father's Day to all of the fathers. Today is a very special day. It's a day that sometimes is filled with laughter and sometimes it's filled with tears because of fathers who are no longer here. You see, my father passed away in December. This is the first Father's Day without my father. I'm glad that mom's here with me. And he would have loved to have been here too if he weren't a preacher. See, the neat thing about being preachers are preachers don't get to spend time on Father's Day with other fathers. So while I never spent much as an adult time with him on Father's Day, we always called and we always chatted. Today's a special day for us. I am very grateful to be able to say to all of you men, Happy Father's Day. Let's go before our Father in prayer and let's pray. The Heavenly Father, Lord, as we approach your throne this morning, we are grateful to be able to come before you in this worship setting. Heavenly Father, we know that throughout the world today, on this first day of the week, that your people are gathered together. And we are not the only ones who have gathered together as your people. We are just blessed to be here at this time and at this moment. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you're glorified in what worship we offer to you. We pray that the songs that we have sung, that they are a pleasing aroma to you. And the prayers that have been prayed, Lord, that they have been prayed with humility before you, understanding you are the source of sustenance. You are the source of peace. And so, Lord, we lay them before you. We pray that you are well pleased 
as we gathered around your table this morning in remembrance of your Son. And Lord, we pray that every day of our life as we remember that we will always cherish that covenant that we are in with you. Lord, at this time, as we turn our attention to listening to you and reading from your word, I pray that as the speaker, that I stay out of your way and that that we glean what you would have us to glean as we have open minds and open hearts to receive your word. Thank you for this day, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, it's interesting. Accounts that happen, and whether or not this is a true account or a preacher tale, I don't know. So I'm going to tell it as if it's real and you discern whether or not it's a preacher's tale or not. A story is told of two men who had a disagreement about a particular subject. And so as people of the world will do in that disagreement, they decided they needed to go before a judge so that that judge could decide who was right and who was wrong. And so the story is told that the first man gets up, the plaintiff, and that he is very eloquent in his speech, very smooth in the way that he would he would deliver his side of the argument. And as he concluded his side of the argument, the judge burst out with this statement. He said, that's right, that's right, he is right. To which the defendant felt like this wasn't going to be a fair hearing because the defendant had not even said a word yet. And so the defendant speaks up and says, judge, wait a second. We haven't even had our turn to give our take on this particular dispute. So it's the judge calmed back down and he sat down and he said, go ahead, defendant, and give your side of the story. So the defendant was also very persuasive, very smooth of speech. And when he concluded his side of the argument, the judge stood up again and said, that's right, that's right, he's right. To which then the courtroom was just was just uh, hustling and bustling with confusion and individuals looked at each other. And finally the clerk, he she spouted out, she said, judge, they both can't be right. To which the judge said, she's right, she's right, she's right. You know what's funny is in our society today, sometimes that's the way the discussion of right and wrong is looked at. Sometimes that's the way the subject of truth is looked at. It's the idea of whoever is most persuasive, whoever is smooth of talk, whoever makes their case the best, that that individual must be the one who holds on to the gem of truth. You know what? I will say this to you. In our culture today, we merely are a reflection. I think I'm hitting the right button. There it is. We merely are a simple reflection of a question that has been going on for some time. When you think back to the days of the unjust trials of Jesus, and yes, I call them the unjust trials of Jesus because you go back and look at that, there were some things that should never have happened in that time. The Jews could not have put him to death, so they utilized the Romans. The councils were not supposed to gather together after a certain time, definitely not at night. And yet they did to condemn Jesus. The whole concept of the Passover that was upon them and why they needed to get Jesus' body off of the cross and the disputes of those who brought false accounts against Jesus. That's why I call them the unjust trials. But in that concept, there's an individual who we are introduced to, Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate was a very weak man. If I can just tell you from a historical standpoint, he was very weak because he was not able to control the province of which he was over. That's why scholarship will tell us that Pilate was in danger of losing losing his position within the Roman government. 
And so he wanted to appease the Jews and make them happy so there would be no uprisings. That's why he would release to them one who was a known felon and yet convict one who was not. Within the discussions, though, we encounter this particular phrase. You see, Jesus and Pontius Pilate would have a discussion. And in that discussion, Jesus would tell him that he came to testify to the truth. John chapter 18 and verse 37. And Jesus would say, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. To which then Pilate would simply answer, what is truth? Everyone who hears my voice will hear the truth. Pilate said, what is truth? And I want you to know something. That question has been echoing ever since John chapter 18. What is truth? You know, our society is interesting in the way that we view truth. Some would say we view truth much like Winston Churchill would summarize when he would talk about how men stumble over the truth from time to time, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing happened. In other words, we're really not interested in truth until we're interested in truth, which is very interesting because we live in a culture that demands truth, but yet we will then at times say that truth is subjective. You know, there's a difference between objective truth and subjective truth. Objective truth means it's outside of the, of the subject. It's, it's objectively true regardless of how I feel, how I think, what I perceive. Truth is truth. It would be the idea of someone making a statement, this building exists. Well, objectively speaking, this building either exists or it doesn't. It doesn't matter what I feel. But you see, subjective truth, subjective is dependent upon the subject. And therefore, subjective truth is what do you think? How do you feel? What are your conclusions? And I hate to say this, but sometimes that's where the majority of the discussions that we have at times, even within our Bible classes, are left within the subjective nature. We'll read a passage of Scripture and we'll say, well, how does that make you feel? That means it's subjective. I'm not asking for what does God think about it. I'm asking for your feelings. Now, in the world of Christianity as a whole, there seems to be more discussion in the subjective nature than in the objective nature. That's why people can say, well, we'll just have to agree to disagree. You agree to disagree because there's not been a set standard for what is the right answer. And so the agreement to disagree is because you've discussed it in the subjective, not in the objective. You see, the truth of the matter is this. Subjective happens when individuals go into the same movie theater and they see the same movie and they come out and both of them say something different. One individual says, that was the worst movie I've ever seen. And somebody else comes out and says, that was the best movie I have ever seen. And the question is, can they both be right at the same time? Because both of those statements contradict one another. But in that setting, being discussed in the subjective, both of those people can be right at the same time. It can be both the worst movie that person's ever seen and the best movie that person has ever seen. You see, sometimes we look at the concept of truth in a subjective manner, but not always. You see, we live in a culture that demands truth. This particular slide points to a concept of what the uh, government did for the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, when it came to enforcing truth in advertising. I don't know about you, but when I buy something, if I, if I consider it based upon its advertising, 
And then if I show up at the store and I look for the qualities that the advertisement said that 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 item was supposed to have, and if I don't find it, I feel cheated. And then there's an element of, I feel that I was misled. In other words, you told me it was going to have this and do that and so on and so forth. And then when I show up and it doesn't have that and do this, then I feel like you've misled me in your advertisement. Do you know there's a law against such? That there are regulations against such. As a matter of fact, those regulations say an ad must be truthful and not deceptive. That is, you're not trying to fool the consumer into buying something. It also says that advertisers must have proof for anything that they claim in an ad. So the idea is if it claims that you can take this pill and lose 50 pounds, then they have got to have some type of evidence to say that that pill will cause you to lose 50 pounds. That's why in your advertisements, have you ever noticed the uh, small print that comes across your television or is in the magazine ad that none of us read? Have you ever noticed that? Or yet when they're talking about the different medicines, I always love this with the medicines, right? They'll talk about medicine and they'll talk about all the benefits and they'll show a happy family or a happy uh, man or a happy woman walking through a park and this will clear up all your ailments. And then in the fine print, as that person is walking through the park, there may be a soft voice that comes on and says, you take this pill and it may cause internal bleeding. You take this pill and it may cause you to die, right? And you look at that and go, you just told me it was going to answer all the all the problems for my illness. And now you're going to tell me all the potential side effects? And the reason is because they have to. Because we demand truth. I'm not about to take a pill that I don't know everything about. I want to know what could this possibly do to me. In the same sense, don't you want to, don't you want to understand truth in the same serious nature? Don't you want to understand every facet of it so that you understand the implications behind it? You see, truth is interesting. When you go down the list, truth is is not something that can be invented. Truth at its core is discovered. It's not something that a person's supposed to come along and say, well, I invented truth. By default, truth can't be invented. It can only be discovered. But you see, truth is also one of those concepts in life that it supersedes uh, cultures. That's why it's said to be transcultural. It's not linked to a particular culture. In other words, truth at its core is not true in America, but not true in Africa. Now, we can have some subjectivity with cultural truth. You know, we used to live in Pennsylvania. We talked about the, the, the families that are connected here with the sessions and whatnot. And in Pennsylvania, I thought it was interesting that we would walk into a house, but you would take your shoes off. You know why you would take your shoes off in Pennsylvania in somebody's house? Because usually you would have some type of uh, not just dirt, but usually in a place that had a lot of snow, you might have snow caked on. You might have salt caked into your shoes. You might have the gray stuff that happens after cars ride over snow. and on your sh- So you would have this room you would enter, and most of the time you would take your shoes off. I'll be real with you. Being here in the South, I don't usually walk into somebody's house and just slip my shoes off. That's just not our culture. It's not our custom. So you can have different customs... And you can have different cultural items, but that doesn't mean that truth isn't still truth. That just means when you're talking about it culturally that you can find some cultural differences. 
But truth at its core is transcultural. Truth is also unchanging. You know, what's interesting is my beliefs about certain things can, we call it evolve, right? I, I used to believe this, now I believe that. I, I can change favorite sports teams. I used to root for this team, now I root for that team. I, I used to think that there was a way to do math or there was a concept in history based upon my knowledge at that time. But the more I learned about math, the more I learned about history, now I'm over here maybe on that particular subject as I've learned more. You see, our beliefs can, can come along, but the truth about cultures or about truth is this. It, at its core, it's unchanging. You see, I may have just discovered the truth, but it didn't mean the truth just happened. It just means that I came along and got on board with the truth. So not only is truth discovered, not invented, transcultural, it's not changing even though my beliefs may change. Do you know that my beliefs don't change culture or change truth? And on and on top of that, the idea of truth is it's not affected by the attitude of the one professing it. And I'm grateful with that because sometimes individuals can have rotten attitudes when it comes to what is truth and what is not truth. You know, we live in a society today that's been termed post-truth. As a matter of fact, the word of the year from Oxford Dictionaries in 2016 or 2017, I'd have to go back and check which one it was, was the the word post-truth. I believe it was 16, because I believe it was following the presidential election. What post-truth is, sometimes you've heard of what's called post-modern. Post-modern means this, if you are a boat and you're floating out on the ocean, you don't have a motor, you don't have a rudder, you're just letting the wind blow you where it blows you. And a post-modern society says this, that you will always get to where you're getting. Now, follow me, ready? Because a postmodern society says there is no destination. In other words, I didn't start at point A going to point B. A postmodern society says, I may have started at point A, but I'm going to get to wherever my point B is because I don't know where my point B is yet, and neither do you. Because how dare you ever try to impose your beliefs on me? How dare you try to impose your point B on me? So if an individual's in a boat and they're out at the ocean and you go up to them and say, hey, you're just floating here aimlessly. You're going wherever the wind will blow you. They will look at you and they will say this, how dare you accuse me of floating aimlessly? Because when there is no path to take, there is no aimless. I'm always on my path when there is no path. Does that make sense? It's the idea of this, you set out on a trip, but you don't know where you're going. You're always where you're supposed to be when you had no destination to hit. When you think about what post-truth is, though, post-truth goes beyond that a step. Post-truth says this, I'm not interested in your facts. I'm only interested in whether or not I feel you're right or not. You see, we're in a post-truth society. Post-truth means this, If I believe you're a good person who is sincere about your beliefs, then I will believe what you believe. Even if I disagree with you, I still may consider your belief because you really believe it. It's the idea of are your feelings in line with it? I'll use some illustrations and whether or not you 
want to go along with these or not, that's fine. And again, I'll tell you, this is not a political lesson in any way, shape, or form. But when this word came out in the time period that it did in America, there was a statement that was made regarding our previous president who said this, that our previous president created the issue with... uh, the, the terrorists. In other words, they, he created the, the Taliban. He created this war with the Muslims. In other words, he was responsible for it. And some individuals would look at that and they would say, well, yeah, he did. And here's the little, little, and they'll get facts. But other people, they don't care about those facts. And truth be known, there are no facts that point to whether he did or he did not. The argument wasn't made based upon facts. It was made upon, based upon, do you like him or do you not like him? Now, in the same sense, The other side of that argument was based upon how rotten our current president is. And there were statements that were made about our current president, uh, the way he treats women and the way that he approaches his own life and how how he looks at himself. And, And the idea was this, not that there's facts across the board to support that, but the idea is, do you feel that those that statement is right? You see, a post truth society is based upon feelings. And that's what's sad and that's what's very scary, quite honestly. Because when I look at where we are in our culture and I look at teenagers today, and I only address teenagers uh, in the sense of if you would think there's a measurement of where our culture has gotten to, you would think the older generations would hold more fastly to truth as a whole and that the younger generations, that they may be more loose on truth. Well, I will say this, that's not the case across the board, but I will illustrate it in this manner. From the latest statistics that I have found regarding the, that generation that is called Generation Z. That's our, our current teenagers and below. You see, the millennials are not our teenagers today. The millennials are having families today. So we've got to be careful of what we're kind of lumping together. But 37% of Generation Zers believe it's not possible to know for sure if God is real. 37%. I don't even know if God is real, they will say. When you really look at that, that's almost four out of every ten. Teens who say God does exist are less likely than adults to say that they are very convinced that this is true. In other words, if I believe God exists, basically only one out of every two are sure about that conclusion. When you consider more than half of all Americans agree with this statement, many religions can lead to eternal life. There is no one true religion. That's not related to just our teenage population. That's our entire population in America. There's a growing sense among Generation Zers that what is true for someone else may not be true for me. In other words, it can be true for you, but it doesn't mean it's true for me. And then it'll go on to say that 66% of teenagers today... Basically, six to seven out of ten teenagers today believe if you sincerely believe something is true, then it's true. Here's what's scary about that. When I go back to 9-11, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that those who hijacked the planes and flew those planes into the, the Twin Towers and into the Pentagon and into the field in Pennsylvania, do you believe that those terrorists sincerely believed what they were doing was right? The, the answer is yes. And yet we live in a culture today that six to seven out of ten teenagers say that if you sincerely believe something, then it is true. That's scary. Because what you have are beliefs that collide. 
and beliefs that cause all kinds of stress and strain when it comes to trying to teach the truth of the gospel. Now, when you look at this, though, I want you to understand something. That did not begin with today's modern generation. That didn't even begin with our millennial generation. And it did not begin with those baby boomers. That there are individuals who all along were crafting and shaping a belief that when it would catch, much like an ember that flies out of a fire pit and lands on a dry field, that ember will will make a small fire and then that fire spreads. That's what has happened over time on the issue of absolute truth. You see, this individual that I introduced to you on the screen is a man by the name of John Dewey. John Dewey is the co-author and signer of the Humanist Manifesto. And in this particular statement that you see on the screen, he would talk about this concept of what's going on with truth and where does truth come from. But this statement comes from 1933, where he said, There is no God and there is no soul. Hence, there are no needs for the props of traditional religion. With dogma and creed excluded, then immutable truth is also dead and buried. There is no room for fixed natural law or moral absolutes. What's interesting about this individual is John Dewey, for any of you who are in, in, in know the history of education in America, John Dewey was fundamental to the current system of education that we have even to this day in our society. You see, our education system was not always what it is now. There was a time where families were the major educators of their children. And then there were the churches who were the educators of the children. But you see, there came along this belief that we need to turn over the education of the children to the professionals. Because the professionals know how to do it better than the ones that God gave to the children. This individual was fundamental in shaping that belief system. He is a humanist at the core of who he is. And he believes that there is no need for religion. As a matter of fact, he believes there is no God and there is no soul. Now, you can imagine then a system that's been shaped by individuals with such beliefs that it would not and should not surprise us that as generations continue to grow and generations continue to grow and things continue to change where the the Bible is taken out of here, prayer is taken out of here, private meditation is taken out of here, challenges to the Pledge of Allegiance happen on this particular account. The idea is, is there any surprise then when we look at our current generation of teenagers and we say, how can so many believe that if you sincerely believe something is true, then it's true? And I would offer this to you. It's because the snowball has been growing over decades. It's been growing over generations. This individual on the screen before you is known as, by some, the father of situational ethics. Joseph Fletcher lived between 1905 and 1991. His work entitled Situation Ethics is the foundation and the model for situation ethics movement today. Situational ethics are this. Uh, in this situation, what is the thing to do? I explain it this way. If I were to tell you about a man by the, by, by the name of Sam. Sam grows up during the period of before the Great Depression. But during the Great Depression, he has uh, a family, a wife with two children. And Sam, Sam is, is one of those unfortunate individuals during the Great Depression that went without work. 
And so every day he would get up and he would go stand in the bread line and he would go stand in the soup line. He would go stand in the unemployment line trying to get some food, trying to have work so that he could provide for his family. But every day he would turn back to that alley home where there would be no food or little food and no work. Finally, the bill collector started to call. His wife starts to get very nervous and his children are just looking at dad for something other than something other than mash. And so the dad says, you know what Sam says to his wife today, I'm coming home with something. He goes and he stands in the bread line. He goes and he stands in the soup line. He goes and he stands in the unemployment line. But every one of those are already out. There are that many people who are looking for the same thing that Sam is. So on the way home, he's feeling very rejected. And he knows that he's going to have to walk home to a wife who's scared and children who just hunger for something else. And as a man, he feels like he's not providing for his home. So as he passes by the local grocer, he notices that the grocer has apples out in the front and he has a bag of apples that he's trying to sell. And Sam grabs a bag of apples. He runs home. He comes through the door to which his wife sees the apples and she lights up thinking things are different. He's got money. We've got employment. The children run to him and hug him and just bite into the apple. It was the first sweet taste they've had in such a long time. And Sam looks at his wife and his wife says, Honey, did you get a job? To which Sam says, No, I did not. The bread line was empty, the soup line was empty, and the unemployment line was empty. She said, well, how did you get the apples? He says, well, I was walking by and I knew I couldn't come home empty-handed and the grocer had had a lot of apples sitting out front and so I just grabbed a bag. I, I just had to bring them home for us to enjoy. Let me ask you a question. Did Sam do the right thing? If there's anybody here today that is struggling with whether or not Sam did the right thing, then you understand the concept of situational ethics. Because stealing is stealing. But when I throw a a rejected man, a scared woman, and children who are going hungry, all of a sudden I pull at the heartstrings of individuals who say the children have got to have those apples. The grocer had a bunch of apples. He's not going to miss those apples. And some of you relate to the man, some of you relate to the woman, and some of you relate to the children. The reason some people may struggle in that is because of what's called situational ethics. In other words, in this situation, stealing is wrong. Well, define a case where stealing is wrong. Somebody comes into your house and they want to steal your TV. Why do they want to steal your TV? Because they need money. And so they come in and they put a gun to your head and they take off with your TV. Were they wrong? See, that's kind of clear cut, right? But when it comes to Sam stealing a bag of apples, some people may go, "Mm, I don't know. That's called situational ethics. Joseph Fletcher has been known as the pioneer of situational ethics. What's interesting is, Fletcher was an Episcopal priest for a time. He was also a member of the Euthanasia Educational Council and an advocate for Planned Parenthood. And Joseph Fletcher would say this, people with children with Down syndrome have no reason to feel guilty about putting a Down syndrome baby away. Whether it's put away in the sense of hidden in a sanitarium or in a more responsible lethal sense, it is sad, yes, dreadful, but it carries no guilt True guilt arises only from an offense against a person, and a downs is not a person. 
You look at that and you go, I can't believe that somebody would ever say that. If you've known a family with a special needs child, if you've known a family with a Down syndrome child, then you would look at that and say, that person doesn't understand that that individual who happens to have Down syndrome is still a person. Still feels, still loves, still cares, still has happiness, still is able to understand very well. But individuals in our culture are saying that there should be no guilt if you put that child away. And he leaves it up to two options. Lock the child up in, a, in an institution or kill the child is what Fletcher would argue for. And you look at that and you'd say, how can anybody argue for that? You know how Fletcher argued for that? He used the concept of love to say what is more loving. Because after all, 1 John chapter 4 verse 8 describes to us a God who is a God of love. The Bible says, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And so Fletcher would say this, as long as love is your motivating factor, then the end result is always right. That's what Fletcher would argue. And he would do so as an Episcopal priest based upon God's nature. So therefore, he had no problem saying that if you, out of love, because you know how hard a life a baby with Down syndrome is going to have it in his time, you go ahead and just kill the baby, then after all, you should feel no guilt about it because your motivation was love. What's interesting is that when I continue on in this text... I find out in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, the Bible says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. So ultimately, God is love. But the idea of you then having love as your motivation, according to the text, means you keep the commandments of God. So therefore, choosing to act outside of the commandments of God does not say you love God. It says the very opposite of that. You say, Joe, why would you go over all of that? It's because I need you to understand where we are today. If you're going to learn to discern absolute truth, then you've got to know why it is such a major deal in our society. We live in a culture that demands it, yet will refute the demand. We live in a society that longs for it, yet not in every area of life. And so for the next few moments, what I'd like for you to consider is this. Number one... That absolute truth is logical. Number two, that absolute truth is biblical. From a logic standpoint, I'd like to ask you to consider what's called a roadrunner response. When you think about the way that the roadrunner and the wily coyote used to operate, do you ever remember when the roadrunner on that show, he would, he would go around a curb, but the coyote didn't seem to respond very well? And so that coyote would go off the edge of the cliff. You ever remember seeing that that cartoon? And what would happen is he would be suspended in the air like cartoon fashion. He would come to the realization that he was already off the cliff and he would try to turn back and get back to the cliff. But it was always going to be one of those things. He would fall and there was some type of acme uh, dynamite or something at the bottom as the coyote would fall down. But then the next scene he's chasing the roadrunner again, right? Well, the idea behind this, this concept of the roadrunner tactic is that when you look at logic concepts, you turn the statement around on itself. 
And if the statement cannot hold up against itself, then it is an illogical statement. So in our culture today, statements are made such as this. There are no absolutes, which I find quite interesting because in order to make that statement, is that not in and of itself an absolute statement? It is illogical at its core. If someone ever comes up to you and says, there's no such thing as absolute truth, you look back at them and you say this, is that an absolute truth statement? Because if they want to be right, they have to say no which then makes that statement fall apart because it cannot withstand being turned on itself. Number two, truth is relative. Really? Is that a relative statement or an absolute statement? You see, because when someone says truth is relative, that is an illogical statement because if truth is relative, then your statement is relative. It doesn't make sense. What about this one? Who knows what the truth is, right? And they ask you to affirm them. Well, how can you affirm them when they've just said, who knows what the truth is, right? Don't you agree? And you're looking back at them going, I can't say anything. Because if I say, who knows what the truth is, right? And you're like, yeah, nobody knows the truth. You've just made a truth statement. And so their question is illogical at its core. What about somebody who says this? No one knows what the truth is. Well, that's interesting. Because if no one knows what the truth is, how can you tell me no one knows what the truth is? That acts like a truth statement. What about this one right here? It's wrong for you to impose your morals on me. Really? Is it wrong for you to impose your morals on me so that I don't impose my morals on you? And in that statement, the reality is this. Their logic falls apart. What about this? There's no right. There's no wrong. Really? Is that statement right or is it wrong? Because it's got to be one of them. What about this? Everybody can believe whatever they want. Really? What if I want to believe that your statement that you just made is wrong? Can I believe that? No, you can't believe that. You can only believe what you want to believe as long as you don't disagree with me. Well, that's not what you said. Now, why would I even show you those statements? Why go over this concept? I go over the concept because I need you to understand something. These seem to be common sense. These seem to be, should should not have to have explanations. But in our culture today, what is common is no longer common anymore. Because people don't think through what they're saying logically. And what I'm offering to you is this, as children of God... We must understand something without apology that absolute truth does exist and that absolute truth is logical. Two plus two is what? Four, right? If you don't believe that, I would love to exchange some money with you. Now, let me ask you a question. If I go to, if I go to India, is two plus two four? Well, two of whatever their dollars are. And two more of their dollars is always going to equal four of their dollars or four of their money uh, definitions. The idea is this. It's always true. It's always true, except when I step on the scale, right? Then the scale lies. Amen. You go to the doctor and the doctor says, hey, you weigh too much. You're like, no, I'm going to another doctor to tell me the truth. And you go to another doctor, the doctor says, no, you weigh too much. And I'm going to say, nope, your scale is broken. 
So I'm going to go to another doctor. I'm going to go, you weigh too much. Sorry, you are mistaken. Why would an individual say that? Because they're not interested in the truth. They're interested in their desired conclusions. So why would somebody tell you that there is no such thing as truth while making a truth statement? Because they're not interested in the answer at the end. They're only interested in you agreeing with them. Church, I will tell you this. Jesus Christ did not die on the cross for that kind of reasoning. He did not die on the cross so that those who follow Him would be confused that when He said there is truth, John chapter 17 and verse 17, He said, sanctify them in truth. Your word, thy word is truth. Jesus was not talking about a subjective concept. He was talking about an absolute concept. That's why I will tell you this, that not only is absolute truth logical, but absolute truth is biblical. It was read earlier from John chapter 8. And I want you to consider that again. Because that statement that is made there reveals so much to us. In John chapter 8, beginning with verse 31, this is a statement where there were some Jews who had been following Jesus. And people followed Jesus for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes they followed Him because of what He would do for them. Sometimes he followed, uh, he had people follow him for what he would do for others. And it was almost like a show in a circus. Hey, look, this is the talk of the town. Let's go see what he's going to do next. Some people followed him because they were sincere. These individuals in John chapter 8 verses 31 and following, they're not sincere. And so Jesus, knowing the hearts of all men, he knows our hearts as well. He says in verse 31... So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. He'll go on to tell them that he knows that they're Abraham's descendants, but they're acting in ways that Abraham didn't even act. He says, well, that's their father. God is their father. And Jesus would say this, no, no. You're of your father, but it's not of God. You're of your father, the devil. That's this statement. And within this, though, I want you to understand something. That truth at its core is rooted in the Word of God. When you really want to know what is true, you got to go back to the one who invented truth. And that is God. You say truth is only discoverable, Joe, not invented. Well, that's why I will tell you this, that God is the one who put forth truth. God is truth. His Word is truth. Therefore, when it comes to family, His Word is truth. When it comes to interacting in society, His Word is truth. When it comes to government, His Word is truth. When it comes to truth just in general, He is truth. That's why He's the source. What's interesting is some people will follow Him only for what they get. John chapter 6 verse 60 is a statement that would say as such as many would leave because of the difficult statements of truth. You and I would love to believe that Jesus, while on this earth, was about amassing as many followers as possible. And I would say this to you. He was absolutely about amassing followers. But he was not about compromising the truth of the word that his father gave him. 
That's why when some would leave, Jesus would say that there are difficult statements that some people can't handle. Not everybody is interested in the truth. And Jesus knew that. Number one, I want you to know this. Truth comes from God's Word. It's not based on an individual's belief. Number two, I want you to know this. There is freedom in truth. Well, I may not like it. It may hurt. But there's freedom in truth. You go to the doctor and the doctor tells you exactly what you're dealing with. You would rather know what you're dealing with than to have it left out in the dark. The idea is this. When you know what you're dealing with, you can deal with it. When you know what the truth is, you can at least address it. There's freedom in truth. You don't have to worry about a lie to cover up something. You don't have to worry what you're going to say to explain something away. The reality is this. I'm not trying to explain anything away. I'm just walking in truth. And there's great freedom in that. Point number three is this. Not everyone will accept the truth of God's Word and thus the freedom He gives. These individuals could not hear. It wasn't that they couldn't hear His words. is that they couldn't hear what He was saying. And the reason was because they really weren't interested in what He was saying. I just wonder today if you and I are interested in what God is saying. You see, when you and I learn to discern truth, the simple statements found within the Bible point to God's Word is truth. And that truth is absolute. It's not, it's not subjective, but yet objective. It's objectively true when it comes to what the Bible says about family and about husbands. On this day of Father's Day, as we talk about fathers and men who have directed and led us in life, the reality is this, that God's Word is true on what being a godly father is all about. In the same sense, it's true on what being a godly mother is all about. God's Word is truth when it comes to the reality of children within the family. God's Word is truth when it comes to the organization of the church. God's Word is true when it comes to what is authorized in worship within the the collective ecclesia, the called out, the body of Christ. And God's Word is truth when it comes to the subject of salvation. You see, the beautiful thing about a loving God is that He does not withhold truth. He tells us that truth. And so therefore he tells us this, that there is such a thing as heaven and there is such a thing as hell. You see, a loving God tells you these things. A loving God tells you of of his son whom he sent to die on the cross for your sins. A loving God tells you that without being washed in the blood of his son, you cannot have a covenant relationship with him. A loving father, a loving God tells you of the necessity, Galatians chapter 3, to be clothed in the blood of his son. Because a loving God tells you if you die in your sin, then there's only a fearful expectation of judgment day. But a loving God provides a way out of that. A loving God is both just and the justifier. A loving God offers forgiveness when you fail. A loving God allows a bridge to be built when you you cross a chasm that you can't come back on on your own. A loving God says there's nothing you can do to earn it. A loving God says there's nothing you can do to make me have to. A loving God says this is my gift to you. And all of that is revealed in the truth of God's word. That's why this morning, as you consider absolute truth, I want you to consider whether or not truth is important to you when it comes to your salvation. And I ask you to consider that from the standpoint of this. If the Bible says, and it does, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, that Jesus became the source of eternal life to all those who obey Him, do you believe that's true or not? Because the reality is this. Ultimately, 
God's not asking for you to discern that passage. He's only asking you to discern your response to that passage. Jesus is the source of eternal life for all those who obey Him. Do you believe it's true? Do you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Do you believe in the necessity of confessing Jesus as Lord? Do you believe in the necessity of repenting or you're all going to likewise perish is what Jesus would say. Do you believe it's true that one must believe and be baptized to have forgiveness of sin? Because all of that is revealed from your loving God. This morning, the only question is, how will you discern your response to that truth? Our culture says, just feel your way through it. I'm asking you this morning not to respond to the invitation based upon cultural's concept of feeling your way through it. I'm asking you during the singing of this song to truly consider your response to the truth of God's Word. He loves you and He wants to bring you home. So today, if it's maybe a need to ask the prayers of this good body or to be restored and rededicate your life, or maybe you're ready to obey the gospel. Whatever your need is, all of us have to decide how we'll respond.